We are working our way through the book of Judges. The book of Judges, in case you're new to our series, covers a period of Israel's history ranging somewhere between 400 and 450 years. It is a significant period of history. It is a long period of history. 400, 450 years. I mean, think about that span of time, all the things that have happened in that span of time working backwards. Amazing things. Time. The book of Judges begins with the death of Joshua. It concludes with the birth of Samuel, the last judge, the first prophet. We're in the middle of this season, this series of cycles that we find within the children of Israel. Where the children of Israel have failed to be obedient to God, they have failed to remove foreign influences from the land. They have thus left themselves susceptible to temptation, to sin, to compromise. And in doing so, they fall into rebellion. And then God allows, as we see, the fair consequence of rebellion to find itself rooted. He uses these other nations to subjugate the people. Again, you're going to worship other gods? Well, then you'll serve them as well. At some point in that particular cycle, the children of Israel, under their oppression, begin to cry out, not necessarily in repentance, but in suffering. Very similar to the way that within Egypt, under the thumb of Pharaoh, we're told that they cried out to God and God heard their groaning, not their repentance, their suffering. And that spawned him to act in each of these cycles by intervening. And raising up a deliverer, we call a judge. A judge is not someone in a robe arbitrating cases. In this context, it's a deliverer, someone that God anoints, God pours his spirit upon, God raises up to deliver his people. And it's in the act of this deliverance that the people return back. Repentance seems to follow the work of the deliverer and the goodness of God. And isn't that how it works in our lives? We were dead in our sins and our trespasses. But it was while we were still sinners that God died for us, that Jesus died for us, that God provided us a deliverer. And our repentance brings us to him who's already won the victory, who's already won the fight. So we see this cycle. Now, sadly, after being delivered over the length of the life of the deliverer, the people seem to be in communion with God. And then they repeat the cycle, rinse and repeat. For 400, 450 years, this is the cycle. And we've seen several of the judges. A few weeks ago, we looked at Deborah and Barak. This morning, we're going to look at an interesting, we're going to begin our examination of an interesting character by the name of Gideon. Uh, in fact, more, more is written, recorded about this man Gideon than any of the other judges. He's a significant character. Uh, not just in the book of Judges, but he's a significant character in the flow of Scripture, Gideon. We are roughly about halfway into this time period, about 200, 250 years have passed since Othniel, the first of the Judges. One thing I should add before we get to our text is, is not so much what Judges tells us, uh, thinking about the passage, thinking about how we've traveled thus far, it hit me what hasn't been mentioned in the book of Judges. And maybe you've picked up on this. It's an interesting detail. Again, keep in mind, God delivered the people from Egypt before he brought them to the land of promise. He appeared to them on Mount Sinai. He took a group of slaves. 
He made them his people. He formed a nation with him himself in the midst. God's presence in the midst of his people. You go to Leviticus and God or- orchestrates and organizes the development of a tent, a tabernacle. A place that he would dwell in the midst of the people. A place that they should come to encounter God. They get to the land. And in the book of Judges, again, within these cycles and within this rebellion and with all the consequences, what is eerily absent? There's no mention of the tabernacle. There's no mention of the presence of God and the sense of of his dwelling. There's no mention of, of them obeying the Sabbaths or celebrating the feasts. There's no mention of them going and making the, the necessary sacrifices, the burnt offerings or the grain offerings, the fruit offerings. There is no mention of it at all. Now, the tabernacle is present. It's there. Gilgal to Shiloh. And yet there's no mention of it. Something so central to their relationship with God is absent. So there should be no surprise that we find these cycles of rebellion. Verse 1 of chapter 6. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. Again, we've seen this refrain over and over already in our travels. They did evil in the sight of the Lord. Again, not to beat a dead horse. It's evil in the sight of the Lord. It is the sight of the Lord that determines what is evil and what is good. It is not based upon your sight, your opinion, your justifications. God is the arbitrator of right and wrong, of what is true and what is false. And if God sees it and determines it to be evil, it doesn't matter how you see it. And the children of Israel here are doing evil as defined by God. So the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian for seven years. The Midianites are an interesting group of people. There doesn't seem to be a lot of archaeological or historical evidence that that give them any particular land with defined boundaries, as opposed to the Phoenicians, very particular area, the Edomites, we know where they were from, the Egyptians, obviously. A a lot of the people groups had actual areas or geographic locations uh, that we can point back to, and thus they would uh, make excursions into Israel and then then retreat back, etc., the Moabites is an example, or the Philistines in Gaza. The Midianites are an interesting group of people because they don't seem to have like an actual country, but they are a distinct ethnicity, a group of people, and they, they appear to be rather nomadic, kind of a people without land, but viewed everything as their land, kind of a modern-day gypsy in the sense. So the children of Israel are doing evil in the sight of the Lord. Now God decides to use the hand of Midian, And so for seven years, verse two, and the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel because of the Midianites. The children of Israel made for themselves the dens, the caves, and the strongholds, which are in the mountains. And so it was, whenever Israel had sown, Midianites would come up, also Amalekites, and the people of the east would come up against them. Then they would encamp against them and destroy the produce of the earth as far as Gaza, and leave no sustenance for Israel, neither sheep, nor ox, nor donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents, coming in as numerous as locusts. Both they and their camels 
were without number, and they would enter the land to destroy it. The, the scenario being described for us is that as a result of their wickedness, their, their evil deeds, using the Midianites, it would be at harvest time. So the children of Israel would work the land, and it would be harvest time, and they would be reaping the, the produce of their labor, and it would be at that time that the Midianites would be like, time for some food. So they would sweep in like locusts, and they would come by force, and they would take all of the grain, all of the harvest, all of the sustenance from the people. And then they would go back, leaving Israel with nothing. What a frustrating dynamic. What a unique judgment. God allowed the people to work the land. God allowed them to be successful in working the land. God allowed there to be fruit from their labor, produce. And then what happened? God allowed it to be taken away, leaving them with no fruit of their labor. You know, that's what sin often does. Yeah, I've seen, I've seen people do wonderful things for the Lord, minister faithfully, serve the Lord, but there was sin, hidden sin, unconfessed sin, unrepentant sin, and they were doing these amazing things for the Lord. And, and there was fruit that was coming from their ministry. But there was this cancer under the surface. And what ends up being the judgment? God allows that sin to take everything else away. So they're left with nothing. I know men no longer in ministry who God had used in powerful ways and now they have nothing to show for it. It's a judgment. Now, I'm speaking, obviously, as a pastor in its application to myself. But in your own life, do you understand that, that what God is doing in your life, the work that he's accomplishing, the fruit that's being produced, the harvest in your future can be taken away by sin? And God will allow it. We see the Midianites come into the land and they take. We're told in verse 6, so Israel was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites. And the children of the Lord cried out. The children of Israel cried out to the Lord. And it came to pass that when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord because of the Midianites. It took seven years, by the way. That the Lord sent a prophet to the children of Israel, who said to them, thus says the Lord God of Israel. Now, again, a priest and, and these important roles within God's people, the, the priest would represent mankind before God. That would be his role. The prophet would, would represent God to the people. So the prophet would speak for God. And, and therefore, we have a thus says the Lord, I brought you up out of Egypt. I brought you out of the house of bondage. I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you, and I gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, 
but you have not obeyed my voice. Heaven, it will be exciting, you know. There's a lot to have an anticipation for when it comes to heaven. One of the the things I'm excited for about heaven, it's down the list, but it's on it, is the identity of this prophet. You notice we're not given his identity at all. Uh, we're, we're, We're in this midst of rebellion. They're suffering the consequences. The Midianites, they're crying out. They're whining. They're complaining. And God sends them a prophet. Now, we don't know if if this prophet was on a circuit. We don't know if the, the people of Israel gathered together to a certain location. We don't know who the prophet is. We don't know his name. It's a unique character, a prophetic utterance. But what's the substance of his message? This is happening to you because of you. This is your fault. That's the message. Thus says the Lord, I've done a lot of great things for you. The predicament you find yourself, that's on you. I delivered you. I freed you. I gave you a land. I just said obey. But you haven't. And so this is what you get. So don't look any further than yourself for the explanation for why you're in the predicament that you're in. And man, isn't that the first step to any type of deliverance? Any type of salvation requires fundamentally an awareness within the person of their need for saving. If you're on a boat that's sinking, I know it, and I'm in another boat trying to save you, but you refuse to acknowledge the boat sinking, am I any good as a deliverer? No, because you're in a sinking boat and you are refusing to acknowledge the reality that your boat is sinking. And at some point, like many of you, it's not until like you're Jack Sparrow coming in, like standing on top of the mast as the whole boat is underwater, that you're finally willing to acknowledge, you know, I need some help. You see, the first step here, and this is the role of the prophet here, and and, and the people, they're experiencing the consequences of their sin. They're upset about it. They're whining about it. And so God's like, if you want deliverance, Take a moment, look in the mirror, self-evaluate. You're the problem. This is why I I just, I cringe at like the Dr. Phil theology of life. And that tends to be that your problem is you don't love yourself enough. When your problem is the opposite, you love yourself too much. Like, understand the gospel message has nothing to do with making you a better you. That's not the goal of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's not what this book is about. This book is not a diatribe or or set of commands that you should obey for self-improvement. No, this is a book about full demolition and rebuilding. You see, the gospel message of Jesus Christ is that you're broken, irreparably broken, and he doesn't want to fix you up. You're not a fixer-upper. Chip and Joanna can't help you. Instead, what the gospel says is, hey, 
I don't want to make you a better you. I want to make you someone totally different. More like Jesus. That's why the, the language used is we die to ourselves. Death. Paul says, I died in Christ and I now live in him. My body was nailed to the tree. I rose from the grave with him. I am a new creation in Christ Jesus. All things have passed away. All things are becoming new. That doesn't begin unless you're willing to look yourself in the mirror and say, my biggest problem is staring me back in the eye. And I need Jesus. I said you, I am the Lord your God. Do not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. Verse 11. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree, translated in the Old King James, an oak tree, which is in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash, the Asburnite, while the son of Gideon threshed wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites. <laughs> I love this story. This is a great story. First, notice again, now the capital A, angel of the Lord. What we have here is another, it's the second one in the book. This is a Christophany. A Christophany is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. So before Jesus came out of Mary and was wrapped in swaddling clothes, laid in a manger, I don't know if you know this, he existed before that as the physical manifestation of God. And there are times all throughout the Old Testament that God came down in human flesh to deal with things. A lot of examples of this. I refer you back to an earlier study for a more expansive list. This is another example. And it'll become very evident if you're like, I don't know, Zach, you'll see later, okay? Spoiler alert, this is Jesus. So I want to just reread the verse with the actual identity. Now Jesus came and sat under the terebinth tree. Takes a totally different vibe, doesn't it? Which was in Ophrah, while Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press in order to hide it from the Midianites. So Jesus <laughs> comes down, hears their groaning, he sends a prophet, message, self-evaluate. Jesus comes down. I'm gonna have to act again. And what does he do? He goes to this oak tree and he kicks back. He's sitting, get the scene, he's sitting at this oak tree. Maybe he's got an apple in his hand. He's just chilling and he's watching Gideon. Now, what is Gideon doing here? Gideon is threshing wheat in a very odd place, a wine press. Now, most often when you're threshing wheat, you would go up to a higher vantage point. The top of a hill typically was a threshing floor. You needed a breeze to separate the grain from the chaff. You, you'd crush it up, you'd throw it up, the chaff would blow away, the heavier stuff would fall, and thus you had the meal in order to make bread. But you needed a place where, where there was air movement. In contrast, a wine press, you needed a very cool place that was shielded from the weather, often in a cave or a very low-lying area. So you have Gideon threshing wheat, not on top of a hill, but down in a wine press, basically a hole in the earth, terrible place to thresh wheat. Now, why is he doing it? Well, he's doing it because, well, the 
it's harvest time, and what has happened? The Midianites come in looking for people threshing, and they steal your stuff. So Gideon's sick of having his stuff stolen, so he's like, I'm not going up to a a vantage point that I can be seen. I'm going to go down into a wine press and thresh my wheat. There's no breeze, so how is he doing it? One commentator, I loved it, I agree with him. Imagine Gideon. So Jesus is sitting off to the side, creeping on him, just staring. And there's Gideon in this hole doing a peculiar thing. He's taking the, the, the grain, he's throwing it up in small handfuls <laughs> to try to get it to separate. And Jesus is just watching. That's interesting. Just watching. And then Jesus, he appears to him. And this is what he says. He says, the Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. Is Gideon anything close to a mighty man of valor in this scene? No. He's completely being cowardly. We got the Midianites there in the land. I got to harvest the stuff. He's doing it in secret, throwing it up. And there's Jesus like, hey, man, mighty man of valor. Gideon was not a mighty man of valor. He's a coward. Now, now I I don't want to take this point too far because we'll circle back to it at the end of the study. I love this. A, I love the fact that Jesus is sarcastic. I, 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 I like that. So when I'm sarcastic, I can just say I'm being Christ-like. Mighty man of valor. But I do love the fact that Jesus, he saw Gideon for who he was going to become, not for who he was anymore. Man, can I get an amen for how good news that is in our own lives? That Jesus often will come down and say, oh, mighty man of valor, when you're at your lowest point, and you're like, I am far from that. He's like, I know. You're in a hole in a wine press trying to thresh wheat, but I see you for who I'm going to make you, not for who you are. Mighty man of valor. So Gideon said to him, oh, my Lord. Now, understand that we, we're given a little detail here that's important. Notice that Gideon says, oh, my Lord. Adonai is, is Lord. This is not capitalized. This is not Jehovah. There is a man interacting with Gideon. We already know that this man is Jesus, the angel of the Lord. Gideon, though, doesn't, doesn't realize this at this point. Hey, mighty man of valor. And Gideon's going to have a conversation with this guy, not really sure who the guy is. Hey, Lord, my Lord, he's being respectful. Now, that's interesting to me because that doesn't mean that there was something about Jesus in this moment that was like super obvious angel of the Lord. He's just interacting as a normal guy, having this conversation. So Gideon says, oh, my Lord, if the Lord, now, Lord, if the Lord, Jehovah, is with us, why then? Has all of this happened to us? And where are all of his miracles, which our fathers told us about, saying, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. 
first, Gideon either missed the message of the prophet or he's debating it. He's like, you know, the prophet came. He said all this stuff about what the Lord's done. I don't see him acting. Where's he been? I don't see his power. I don't see his presence. I hear about all these stories of what he did in the past. But right now, we're in bondage to the Midianites. We're suffering. And from my vantage point, God is absent. Now, keep in mind who's standing in front of him. God. (laughs) There's a reaction coming that will make sense. So the Lord turned to him and said, go in this might of yours, and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? Go in this might of yours. Have you seen any might here? You got a guy that's cowardly, threshing in in a wine press, having a conversation with another dude, questioning God's involvement, his power, what's going on. And then the response is, hey, this might of yours, go. You will save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? Now, there's, this gives us an indication that there's a part of the story that, that we weren't privy to. Have I not sent you? Jesus here is, is pricking something within Gideon's conscience. See, Gideon has, at some point, has had some type of stirring that he should do something. He's been questioning where God is, but he's felt a stirring that maybe God wants me to do something. But has he done anything? No, he's been cowardly. He's run from it. He's gone to a wine press instead of the top of a mountain. And then Jesus, have not I sent you? Now that stirs something. There's an awareness. So Gideon said to him, said to Jesus, oh my Lord, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan, his family, we're the weakest in Manasseh, which is one of the tribes. So my family, we're like at the bottom barrel of Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. Gideon's saying, there is nothing about my background, there's nothing about my person, there's nothing about me that qualifies me in any regard to act in such a way to be used by God for such a day to deliver Israel. You're you're barking up the wrong tree. I'm the wrong guy. Verse 16, and the Lord said to him, now again, notice, he's talking to the angel of the Lord we've been introduced to, who looks like a normal man. Gideon is unsure of his identity. Further confirmation that this is Jesus is that within the text itself, Verse 16, and the Lord Jehovah said to him. So that removes any doubt of who we have as the identity of this angel. The Lord said to him, surely I will be with you. And you shall defeat the Midianites as one man. I notice there's two promises within this, isn't there? One, God would be with him. Promise, it's a guarantee. Second promise, you'll be victorious. So there should be no doubt. God has made a promise to Gideon. He will be with him and there'll be victory. Then Gideon said to him, if now I have found favor in your sight, show me a sign that it is you who talks with me. 
Do not depart from here, I pray, until I come to you and bring out my offering and set it before you. So Jesus said, I will wait until you come back. Gideon is beginning to think, well, man, this, this guy's talking in kind of some weird language here. He's using, you know, wait a second. Could this be? What is this? Now, he's heard stories of this in the past. So Gideon's like, I, I got to like, I got to investigate. So he's like, bro, stay here. I got I to gotta go get something. Will you stay? So Jesus is like, yeah, man, I, I'm good. I'll stay here. I'll wait till you come back. So verse 19, Gideon went. He prepared a young goat and unleavened bread from an ephah of flour. The meat he put in a basket. He put the broth in a pot. And he brought them out to him under the terabith tree and presented them. Now, why would he do any of this? Prepare some meat, unleavened cakes. Not really sure. Maybe he's thinking back to Abraham. When Abraham had guests show up and wasn't really sure who it was, what did Abraham do? Well, I'll at least feed him. So if Gideon's sitting here and he's thinking, this might be Jesus. I don't want to insult the man. The way I can know, I'm going to make him a good meal. Because the one thing I'm sure about God is he loves food. That's kind of, understand, like, the entire interaction with God was built around a barbecue pit. That was what the tabernacle was. It was a glorified barbecue pit. Come interact with me. Your praises are like a sweet-smelling aroma of cooked lamb. So Gideon's like, all right makes this meal, brings it. The angel of the Lord said to him, take the meat, the unleavened bread, lay them on this rock, pour out the broth. So Gideon did so. And the angel of the Lord put out the end of his staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened bread and fire rose out of the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened bread. And the angel of the Lord departed out of his sight, disappeared. Are you, do you have any doubt as to the identity of, of this individual at this point? Probably not. Now, go back for a moment. Jesus shows up, hey, what you doing, mighty man of valor? Well, I've kind of been waiting on God to do something about this Midianite problem. Seems to be absent. Don't know where God is. Did some works in the past. Where was God? Right there with him. I want to use you to deliver the people. Well, I'm not the guy. Didn't you just hear the earlier diatribe? No, I will be with you. I will give you a victory. I don't know who this is. I need to know. Goes and gets some food. Puts it on a rock. Jesus takes his staff, touches it. Fire comes out of the rock, consumes it. Then Jesus disappears. Gideon is no doubt filled with immediate regret of some of the earlier statements, wouldn't you think? There has to be a bit of dread. Gideon perceived, verse 22, that he was the angel of the Lord. So Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for I have seen the angel of the Lord's face to face. 
Then the Lord said to him, Peace be with you, do not fear, you shall not die. Gideon has this awareness he's been talking to God, the angel of the Lord. Gideon knows the Old Testament scriptures that face-to-face with God, not a good dynamic. You don't make it. He just had this conversation face-to-face with God. He said some stupid things. He's now worried, especially after the disappearance of the Lord, I might be in trouble. He's like, oh, no, I've seen the angel of the Lord face-to-face. Gideon's thinking, I'm about to get smoked. Angel doesn't reappear. A voice comes from heaven. Peace, shalom. Shalom. Gideon, I know you'll be a mighty man of valor. We just have some work to do. I know who you are. I know what I'm working with. It's exactly what I want. Shalom. Peace. You will not die. So Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, the Lord is peace. Probably a good title. To this day, this altar is still an Ophrah of the Abyssinites. So it came to pass the same night that the Lord said to him, take your father's young bull, the second bull of seven years, and tear down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the wooden image that is beside it and build an altar to the Lord your God on top of this rock and the proper arrangement and take the second bull and offer it as a burnt sacrifice with the wood of the, this idol, this image, which you've cut down. So Gideon took 10 men from among his servants and did as the Lord said to him. But because he feared his father's household and the men of the city too much to do it by day, he did it by night. So the same scene, angel disappears, Jesus disappears, peace be among you. Then we get some further instruction. I'm gonna be with you. I'm gonna use you to deliver Midianites, Israel from the Midianites. But before you can get started, we have a task. I need you to go to your father's house, and you know the idol to Baal and the asterisk that next to it. I need you to, to destroy them both, take the wood, build an altar, offer a sacrifice to me. I mean, that's baller. Now, there's some interesting things to this. It tells us a little bit about Gideon's family, right? We're already told that they're like the least of Manasseh, and Gideon's like the least of his family. But within this dynamic, this city, we have Gideon's father as the main caretaker of the foreign idol to Baal. This is full-blown paganism, wickedness. It's evil. Deuteronomy would say, take the man and have him stoned to death. This is Gideon's father. This is his family. This is his clan. They're not just participating in idol worship. They're spearheading it. And yet God has called Gideon. Now, there's a side point that I think is interesting to that. They are worshiping a foreign god. Has their life gotten better or worse? It's gotten totally worse. What's interesting is that you would have thought if the Israelites just capitulated, worshiped the foreign gods, adopted their culture, adopted their practice, that there would be peace with the alternative culture, right? Was there? 
They are worshiping Baal and they are still enslaved. Friends, there is an application to our culture that we can't overlook. There are trends, there are people, there are movements within Christianity, preachers that are saying, well, let's just try to make peace with the culture. Just make peace with it. Let's not ruffle feathers. Let's just try to be one. Let's just try to get along. Understand the other side doesn't care and has no interest in making peace with you. They want you to capitulate so they can destroy you. Gideon's family, they have an idol for the whole town to worship. Have they made peace with anyone? No. In fact, what's ironic is the only one that they have peace with is still with God. So Gideon, I'm going to use you. I know you don't think you're the right guy. And let's be honest, there's a lot of things about you that probably aren't. That being said, I'm going to be with you and I'm going to give you a victory. You're just going to be the instrument. I'm going to deliver Israel out of the hands of the Midianites. But first, you got to get your house in order. I need you to go and I need you to deal with this. Again, do we see great faith in Gideon? No, we're even told in the text, he's afraid. So he's like, I'll wait till dark. But he is obedient. So when the men of the city arose early in the morning, there was the altar of Baal torn down and the wooden image that was beside it was cut down. And the second bull was being offered on the altar which had been built. So they said to one another, who has done this thing? And when they had inquired and asked, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. Then the men of the city said to Joash, bring out your son that he may die. This is Israelites. These aren't Midianites. These aren't foreigners. These are Israelites. They wake up. Their God has been destroyed. It was Gideon, that troublemaker. Instead of repentance, instead of an acknowledgement, instead of like rally, we need to kill Gideon. So they come, bring out your son. But Joash said to all who stood against him, would you plead for Baal? Would you save him? Let the one who would plead for him be put to death by morning. If he is a God, let him plead for himself because his altar has been torn down. Therefore, on that day, he called Gideon Jerubbaal, saying, let Baal plead against him because he has torn down the altar. So what's happening here? The men of the city, they come to Gideon's pop, pops. Your son's torn this stuff down. This is not good. We're going to kill him. The father defends his son. Now he uses some interesting logic. He's saying, well, wait a second. If my son has done something to desecrate Baal, then why do you need to intervene for Baal? If Baal is real and powerful, then just leave it to Baal to deal with Gideon. 
In fact, we'll see how powerful Baal really is. What happens to Gideon? Nothing. The God was powerless. So verse 33, then all the Midianites and the Amalekites, the people of the east, gathered together. And they crossed over and camped in the valley of Jezreel. But the spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. Then he blew the trumpet. The Bazarites gathered behind him. He sent messengers throughout all Manasseh, who also gathered behind him. He sent messengers to Asher, to Zebul, and to Naphtali. They came up to meet them. So the Midianites are coming in. Gideon steps to the plate. All right. Lord, you said you'd be with me. You said you'd give me the victory. He sends, blows the trumpet, sends out the rallying cry. Gideon is going to lead the children of Israel into a battle. So Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, there's so much wrong with that statement. If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, if God said it, it would happen. Look, I'll put a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece only, and it's dry on the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. So it was when he rose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece together, he wrung out of the fleece a bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to God, do not be angry with me, but let me speak just once more. Let me test, I pray, just once more with the fleece. Let it now be dry on the fleece, but on the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night. It was dry on the fleece only, but there was dew on the ground. So you got Gideon, already ticked off God. You ain't been doing nothing. I'll, I'll work through you now. Go take down your father's idols. Now I'm going to wait till night. Some steps. Blows the trumpet, amasses an army. God has said, I'll be with you. I'll give you victory. The battle is on the horizon. And now where is Gideon? Um, God. I, need to just, I just need a little confirmation that it's, that it's you that I've been talking with, that your word is really true. That's, that's what we're going to do. It's very simple, no big deal. I'm going to take a fleece. I'm going to lay it out. Don't let there be any dew anywhere else but on that fleece. And if there is, well, then I'll know. You'll give me the victory. Now, how crazy is it that Gideon goes out the next morning picks up the fleece, which he got from Old Navy, and he wrings it out, a bowl full of water, and there's no dew anywhere else. That's not crazy. What's crazy is that Gideon's like, that was a good one, God. That was good. <laughs> Don't be angry. Which implies that Gideon knows he's pushing the envelope. Let's just do the reverse, just so I know it wasn't an accident. You know, growing up, there was this phrase within Christianity, throwing a fleece, you know. Throwing a fleece was your way of like trying to ascertain God's will for your life, God's plan for your life. God's word wasn't enough. God's promises weren't enough. 
You needed some additional confirmation. So you'd throw out a fleece. Oh God, I, you know, I really feel like this woman should be my wife. But I need a little confirmation. So tomorrow, um, I need her to show up and propose to me. And then I'll know for sure that that's your will. Throwing a fleece. David Guzik and his commentary on this passage, like he just used the most extreme example, which I thought was hilarious. He's like, Lord, this is your will. At two o'clock in the morning, I need a three foot tall midget dressed in an admiral's outfit showing up outside of my window. Then I'll know it's you. Throwing fleeces. It's God's grace he capitulated. Is that God's plan? Is that how, is that how God leads his people? Is that how God wants to lead his people? Is that how God wants to lead you? First, what's in, it, it's insulting to God. Because shouldn't his word be trustworthy? Shouldn't it be enough? Shouldn't his promises come with the guarantee? Gideon speaks to Jesus face to face. And he still throws fleeces. Now, next Sunday we'll talk a little bit about the application and how we find God's will for our life. But I, I want to close with what I think to just be, again, the most amazing part of Gideon. And Hebrews chapter 11, so Paul is writing this letter, and he's talking about faith. He starts the chapter, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And then he goes to the Old Testament. He points out all of these people that acted in incredible moments of faith, goes through this whole list. And you know who gets included? Gideon. Have we seen any evidence of like great faith? No. The guy's throwing fleeces, and when the first one is miraculously wet, he throws another one, needs it to be miraculously dry. It's like Gideon is dragging his heels, digging his toes into the sand, just doing everything he can to not be the guy but God had picked him and chosen. And God's evaluation of Gideon, mighty man of valor and the hall of faith. What? First, God's got a really weird way of evaluating talent, doesn't he? But isn't that kind of cool that God has a really almost backwards way of evaluating talent. That a guy with no valor, he calls a mighty man of valor, and a guy with very little faith, he puts in the hall of faith. Again, God saw Gideon from the back, from the end to the beginning. God saw him as to the man he would be. For us, you know, the Bible says that when God, 
If, if you're a believer in Jesus, if Jesus has atoned for your sins, if he's filled you with his spirit, the Bible says that he has justified you and made you righteous. Meaning that when God sees you, he sees you in two ways right now. Justified, which is the easiest definition is that God sees you just as if I'd never sinned, which is why he declares you to also be righteous. And you're like, does he not see me? Oh, no, he does. He sees who you are and who he's going to make you into. He sees the end and he evaluates you the whole time. Mighty man of valor, hall of faith. Gideon is far from that, but not from God's perspective. And if you this morning feel like a Gideon, I don't have a whole lot of faith, and I'm the wrong guy. And you can come up with all the different excuses and the reasons, and there's idols in our home. Mighty woman of valor. You know, how our lives would change if we saw ourselves the way that Jesus does. Loved, chosen, redeemed, made pure and holy. How the world would change if we saw other people the way that Jesus saw them. That you saw your wife as pure and holy and spotless and redeemed and loved and perfect. That doesn't mean she doesn't have flaws. But from God's perspective, she's perfect. Fearfully and wonderfully made. If we saw each other that way. If we could see and evaluate as God does. Gideon is in the hall of faith. <laughs> that means you can too. Faith. That spiritual muscle that takes what we believe into action, into practice. And you don't need a lot of it if you put your faith in the right person. The angel of the Lord Jesus. So Father Lord, we thank you for the Gideons.